Hey, how's it going? I'm your host, Gerhard Zou, and you're listening to Ship It, a podcast about getting your best ideas into the world and seeing what happens. We talk about code, ops, infrastructure, and the people that make it happen. Yes, we focus on the people because everything else is an implementation detail. This is our second Kaizen episode where we talk about changelog.com improvements and it's a straight follow-up from episode 10. Okay, so I deleted the DNS API token. It was my bad. Not only did I take the time to understand how that happened so that I could actually learn from my mistake, but now we have a system in place that we can share learnings from incidents. By the way, these are publicly available in our incidents Slack channel. A great and unexpected thing that happened since we recorded this is Jared fixing 99% of all the errors that were happening in prod. The top error was the broken Twitter auth. Sorry, Matt, which was a result of us upgrading to OTP24 a few months back. Episode 3 show notes include a link to the YouTube stream which captures it all. We wrap up this episode by each of us sharing the improvements that we would like to do until our next Kaizen. You heard it from Jared first. Ship it driven development. Big thanks to our partners Fastly, LaunchDarkly and Linode. Our bandwidth is provided by Fastly. Learn more at fastly.com. Get your feature flags powered by launchdarkly.com. And we love Linode. They keep it fast and simple. Check them out at linode.com forward slash changelog. What's up, shippers? This episode is brought to you by our friends at Fly. Fly lets you deploy your apps and databases close to your users in minutes. You can run your Ruby, Go, Node, Dino, Python, or Elixir app and databases all over the world. No ops required. Fly's vision is that all apps should run close to their users. They have generous free tiers for most services, so you can easily prove to yourself and your team that the Fly platform has everything you need to run your app globally. Learn more at fly.io slash changelog and check out the speed run in their excellent docs. Again, fly.io slash changelog or check the shows for links. We are going to ship in three, two, one. This is the second Kaizen, second series of improvements, two and a half months later, 10 episodes later, here we are. And I listened to the last episode yesterday, or well, our first Kaizen episode, Mm -hmm. episode 10. So I am picking up the discussion exactly where we left it off. How about that? Wow. I'm going to read the transcript. As a listener, if you want this to make a bit more sense, then read the transcript if you want, as Adam is doing, or maybe listen to that. I think it will make a lot of sense. So a big portion of episode 10, we discussed about incidents, about having issues, and how do we share the learning within the team? How do we capture what happened, what the problem was? How do we have follow-ups for us to improve on? And remember when I was saying that it was either Adam or Jared that deleted the DNS simple token? Mm. Oh, yes. Yes. I recall that. We were trying to track that down. Yeah. It was actually me. Oh, I had gosh. a feeling. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely me. <laughs> I knew it wasn't me. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> I did it. <laughs> Why? How? Tell us. So when I set up the new DNS simple token for cert manager and for external DNS, even though I created the new one, I was still using the old value. So there was a new token, but the value which I was using in the new infrastructure okay. was the value from the previous token, from the old token. Was the old so one. when I deleted the old token, because that's what it was in DNS simple, that like just stopped working. I so see. things broke. But it gets a bit more interesting than that. Mm-hmm. Apparently, there's two sets of tokens. There's one token, which you get via user settings and user access tokens. And those are the ones that we were looking at last time, trying to figure out why is this token missing? Where is the token? But there's also account automation tokens, which is another sub-menu in a different page. Those were the tokens that I couldn't find last time. And I confirmed that it was definitely not there. So I worked all that out. The more important thing was how do we track this, right? How do we capture this so that in the future, when this happens, we know where to look? And we looked at a few incident management platforms. We discussed a little bit about Fire Hydrant and Incident.io. 
We even did a write-up, say we, it's a royal we. I even did a write-up to compare the two. It's like an internal one to see why may we choose one versus the other. When we discussed in episode 10, Fire Hydrant was actually fronted by Fastly because the issue which we're trying to mitigate against was Fastly. It would have been a bad decision to choose a system that has Fastly in front when there's a Fastly issue, right? Because you can't get to the system. So Incident doesn't use Fastly in front. So that was one of the reasons. There was a couple more. But um, using Incident, we created four incidents so far. And the first one was this. That's Incident 1. TLS certificates are failing to renew. So what do you remember about that incident, Jared? Do you remember much about it? Do you remember about the experience, about looking at it? What do you remember about it? Is this the one that comes into Slack and starts a new channel in Slack, and then you can update it there? Yes. Okay. So I remember that much. I don't remember anything else about it, honestly. Okay. <laughs> How about you? You must, you probably have way more context than I do. Remember the emails about it. Emails. In addition to the incident in Slack, of course. But there were some emails about TLS expiring mm-hmm. and issues and stuff like that. Yeah, we had those. Yes, they were useful, but not useful from the perspective of what is the problem, what goes into debugging the problem, and so on and so forth. So there is the incidents Slack channel, which, by the way, is public to everyone. So if anyone wants to go in our Slack, open up incidents, you can see what is an incidents we had, including the first one. And there's a link. So in our case, it's app.incident.io forward slash incidents forward slash one. And that loads up the first incident. And you just log in with Slack. So that's like a nice integration. The reason why I'm asking this is because having run it and having captured this information, how useful is that? Or how, like, just glancing at it, does it look useful? Is it something that you see going back to, referring to? That's what I'm wondering. So you just heard how bad my memory is. Mm-hmm. That's why you write things down. <laughs> right. So in the case of somebody saying, haven't we had this problem before? Or distant memory of TLS errors. And I would say something like, yeah, we have, but I don't remember anything about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. so what was that? I mean, we're talking about July. So we're now in September. So a couple of months, it's just come and gone. Yeah. Now, I think you fixed it, Gerhard. So you probably remember it better than I do. I just kind of watched it happen. Mm-hmm. So the ability to go back to it, which I now I've scrolled back to, it was July 12th. It just happened to be my birthday. Happy birthday. When this happened. <laughs> oh, thank you. Belated, awfully belated there. I'm pretty sure I said happy birthday yeah. back then, but now that you mentioned yeah. it. Now that you know how bad my memory is, you can just retcon that for me. I'm seeing some details here about it. And if I could click through somehow to incident IO from the Slack incident, mm-hmm. then I'm sure there would be even more information. But in this particular channel, or maybe, oh, here we go. I got to click through to the, each incident gives its own channel. So there's the incidents mm-hmm. channel. And then the incidents get their own channel, Mm -hmm. which I can come and go. And I could read all of the details here, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So now I'm looking at this. It's kind of loading in, screenshots, et cetera. So it's great for just outsourcing your memory, I think. Yeah. That's about what I would use it for. Yeah, I like the fact that there's like a a grand channel, incidents channel, where you can go and see all the incidents. I like the fact that it's public. So if you're listening to this, you're in Slack already, then just hop in that channel. You can just pay attention to what we're doing just for fun or, you know, to ask questions or just be aware. You know, so I think distributing, you know, the knowledge, not just to insiders, but to externals who want to participate or just pay attention can. That's cool. That was one of the things which were top of my mind back then. Not only that, but I tried it. And now we're improving our understanding of this thing, of this new thing that is in our stack. What do we like about it? What don't we like about it? Stuff like that. How well does it work? At least we know where to pay attention when these things happen, when there are incidents. Because a lot of the time something goes wrong and you just don't know, like, what's the problem? So I mentioned that we had four incidents since. Mm -hmm. The second one, that was an interesting one, Mm -hmm. where this is something that Jared was like trying to investigate. Actually, he even fixed it. I did. That was the PR378. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that, the story behind it? Testing Jira's memory yeah. again. Here we go. I'm now opening the incident to my memory. <laughs> <laughs> it was like a failure for the application to boot in production or something, but it mm-hmm. was, oh, it's coming back to me. So this leads into Oban a little bit, doesn't it? Yes, yes. Parker Selberg. Yeah. Thank you, Parker. That was a great improvement, by the way. We really appreciate it. And I even captured this in the comment in PR378, how much we appreciate you contributing this and testing how reliable our system is. And in some ways it failed in an unexpected way. But for me, the most important thing was to test 
how we use the incident management platform, how we capture these issues, how we work amongst ourselves and how we have this memory written down of what happened and why it happened and what we may want to do about it. That was for me the highlight. But what were you going to ask, Adam? Well, I'm just looking down the incidents channel now. And one, I like the fact that we're describing it as memory, which I think is interesting. You know, some would say that incidents tend to be big things, not small things. These seem like, you know, I guess they're just incidents, you know, that, mm-hmm. you know, that they can make them more grand than they need to be, basically. These seem to be like blips along the, you know, SRE radar, essentially. You know, is the app working? Is there an error? You know, it's kind of interesting how this works out. But the question really is, is the helpful summary that comes along with the incident. So is there a precursor ceremony prior to this coming into Slack or is this automated? Because that summary seems written by you Mm -hmm. and that wouldn't mean that there's like a pre-incident to you that you then declare an incident into Slack. How does that work? Yes, that's correct. So for slash INC, that's the shortcut. And I forget what is the command, but if I don't type a command and I just press enter, it asks me what I want to do. Do you want to declare a new incident? Yes, I do. I think that's like one of the first options. I fill in the details, like the title, quick summary, mm-hmm. start, and that just creates a new channel. And then from there, I have like a bunch of options. It has like check-ins. I don't want to spoil it too much because the episode that soon follows, we will be talking with the incident team about the incident and about our experience. Okay. We'll have like a whole episode about this, how it works. What episode number is that going to be? Do you know? 21. 21. So it's, it's literally the next episode. So if you're yeah. in the future and there's a 21 episode, an episode number mm-hmm. 21, just pause and go listen to that if you want to and come back, but, or just earmark it. I didn't want to be too certain, right? Remember yeah. 100% uptime. <laughs> okay. It's near, it's on deck. Let's, let's, I've been using the word on deck lately. Right. So in Slack, you have slash INC, which is short for slash incident. Mm-hmm. That's so right. You can do either INC or incident fully, the full name, yep. and it creates slash manages an incident. So yes. when something happens, you create an incident here, you summarize it, it asks you some questions. There's some interactive process that incident yes. in, integrates with Slack mm-hmm. to let us use a Slack channel, incidents, the incidents mm-hmm. channel, as our pointer to all incidents that happen now and in the future. Correct. So let's go back to this incident too and let me tell this story because it unravels a little bit from this Oban situation, which you just thanked Parker. So let me tell that story because our listener hasn't been in on it. Last episode, we were talking about changelog.com and the open source code base that runs it. And Parker was listening to the episode, Parker Selbert. And he is the author of Oban, or Oban, which is a background job processing library for Elixir, which is a dependency of our code base, but we weren't fully utilizing that. So to tell that story a little bit, when I first wrote all the background processing stuff in Elixir was just happening by just backgrounding things with native Elixir functions and features. And that served us very well for many things such as sending emails and processing statistics and anything you'd want to do in a background job. I didn't need a background job library, which I thought was really awesome. And I guess that lasted us four or five years without having to have a background job library. However, late last year, we had Alex Kupmos working on some features. And one feature is the ability to edit your comments on the site, not have the original comment be emailed directly to the recipient's the notifications be delayed, basically. So if I write a comment, I think I have three or five minutes to edit that right away, just for typos. And you know how you always notice a typo right after you hit submit, right? Mm. Even with the preview. We have a preview button. You can preview the markdown. You can look at it. And then you hit send. And then it's like, oh, gosh. Undo emails, the feature which I use the most. Yeah, exactly. Undo. So this is like basically the undo (laughs) email feature in our commenting system. And to do that, we have to say, okay, delay the email notifications for this comment for five minutes. So that person has a chance to edit it. We don't want to send out the original if they're going to change it. And so for that, Alex added Oban, which you can do exactly that feature. So Oban is a background processing library that's persistent. It uses Postgres as its persistence layer. So Alex added that. He said, hey, there's a bunch of other stuff that we could cut over to Oban if you want me to. And I was like, nah, I'll take care of that. And then I never did. (laughs) Thankfully, I didn't. Because things happen. Because Parker was listening to that episode. And out of nowhere, he opens this amazing pull request, the one that Gerhard just thanked him for. 378. 378, where he basically goes through our entire website and best practiced fashion, Oban usage, removing some dependencies like Quantum, which was a cron scheduling thing, which Oban can do cron scheduling. 
all this cool stuff. So thank you for that. It's an amazing PR. And it was cool to see not just Oban being used more broadly, but also like the guy who wrote it. So you know it's the right way to use it versus me trying mm-hmm. to use it with my limited knowledge. So that was really cool to see. And his reasoning was actually that. He's like, here's a nice open source code base that's using Oban. I want it to be using it in the best way possible. So when people see it, they see best practices. So that's why he said he did it. Mm-hmm. Now, the rollout to that caused this incident. And that's all coming back to me. He had a typo in the production config, which of course it's only in prod. So none of our test environment runs it. In dev, you're not going to see it. In test, you're not going to see it. And so I did all my due diligence except for in prod. And then we did our due diligence in prod when we deployed it and everything broke. Now, the this pointed out this insufficiency in our deployment process, right, Gerhard? Because this should have never went live. Is that right? Yes. So first of all, I'd like to thank Charity Majors for coining and popularizing the term. I'm not sure about coining, but definitely popularizing the term testing yeah. prod, mm-hmm. right? Like until you're testing prod, you're not really testing. You're pretending to be testing. Okay, I'm being facetious now because it's not quite like that. But the listeners that know this slogan, where it came from, from Charity Majors, know what I mean. Yeah. To come back to Jared's point, yes, this release should have never gone out in the sense that when the new version came out, because it failed to boot, it should not have been put behind the service because it was never ready. It would never boot. For some reason, it was And even to this day, I didn't spend enough time on this to understand why that happened, because the system, in this case being Kubernetes, should not have updated the pod, the new pod, should not have put it behind the service because it was never healthy. It never booted long enough. It never started. Why it happened? I don't know. Yeah, because isn't this the way Kubernetes works? It's like blue-green deploys or something. Like it never went green. It should have stayed blue. Yes, it's a bit more basic than that, in that if a pod is not healthy, and ready, it will not be put in the service, right? Because it's it's not healthy. It has to pass its health checks before it can be marked as ready. And it was never ready. These are the readiness probes. The readiness probes, which basically runs HTTP requests. I think, yeah, they are HTTP requests to port 4000. Mm. There was nothing bound to full port 4000 because it wouldn't boot for long enough. I mean, it actually wouldn't even boot. It would crash because the config was wrong. So the app could never boot. And because it could never boot, how did the readiness probes pass? They never passed. And if they didn't pass, why was the pod put in the service? That shouldn't have not happened, but it did. And so what happened as a result of that then? So the pod that was unhealthy was put into service. And what was the actual incident? So the incident was that the origin was returning 503 responses. What that means is that the CDN fastly, it proxies these requests. It forces these requests to LKE, Linode, where our app is running. And the origin, in this case being LKE, our app running in LKE, was returning 503s. This is Ingress Nginx. Ingress Nginx returning 503. The backend is not available. So the CDN was basically forwarding these requests. Now, this actually affects only a subset of users. And this is the CDN will serve stale content for all like get requests. Obviously not the dynamic ones, not like post, patch, stuff mm-hmm. like that. But get, head, all of those, they will serve stale content. If you're logged in because you're an authorized, you have like a token and a cookie, obviously none of those requests will be cached. So the website will be down for you if you're logged in. So Adam, Jared, myself, when we're logged in the app, we will see that this down. But anyone like listening to our feed or like podcasts, listening to episodes, they don't even see this. Browsing the website, they wouldn't see this, especially if they're not logged in. So that part behaved as, as it should. That was good. But obviously we detected it and our alerting detected it and we, like, we could see straight away that it was down. Mm. Yeah, exactly. So it's kind of like a degraded performance is what it becomes because there's certain endpoints, certain pages, whether you're logged in or logged out, that don't work. And I think it was actually a redirect that we were used to having there was failing because of a 503 when it finally hits the app. Mm -hmm. And so for certain people, I think it was for signed in people only, which is like you want your signed in users to have their best experience, but they actually get the worst. It was just down for them. And so Mm -hmm. that's what happened. And so, of course, fixing that was paramount. But according to the world at large, we were still up. (laughs) 
This episode is brought to you by PlanetScale, the database for developers. PlanetScale is the only serverless database platform. You can start an instant and scale indefinitely with unlimited connections. The premise is simple. Never think about database servers again. The PlanetScale platform is based on MySQL and Vitesse, which powers Slack, Square, GitHub, YouTube, and more. Everything you want to control is available through the beautifully designed PlanetScale CLI, including their data branching feature, which is the first MySQL platform to allow you to create non-blocking schema changes and integrate your schema changes with your CI-CD processes. PlanetScale is the last database you'll ever need. Learn more and start your database in seconds at PlanetScale.com. Again, PlanetScale.com. One of the other things that we improved since episode 10 were more redirects at the edge, specifically in Fastly. So now we have dub 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 to the root domain to the apex, redirects in Fastly, and things happen very quickly rather than going all the way to our app. HTTP to HTTPS redirects, which also happen in Fastly. And I think there are a couple more changes around the health checks frequency because we were getting just way too many health checks. I think we're getting close to a thousand every minute oh, wow. from all the Fastly pops. And we reduced that to about 300, maybe even lower. I forgot exactly how much it was. Actually, I can look, at, look it up. Let me click on this to see exactly. Oh, yes. See, writing it down. So <laughs> our ingress and our app, they were servicing 44 requests per second from all the Fastly pops, which means 2.6 thousand requests per minute. It was quite a wow. few things in our logs. And when we went down, we went to, let me expand the screenshot. We went to about 196, 196 per minute. So you have about three requests per second. So more than 10x improvement. So we were placing way too much load, way too much strain on our origin. But the thing which I want to focus on is some of the improvements, some of the redirects, which are did in Fastly. And that was one of the improvements that Jared wanted to make. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us a bit more about that, Jared? Why did you want to make them and how did that work? Because there was also a problem that Adam spotted. That was a good one. So first, the why. We don't want to serve anything over HTTP because HTTPS everywhere. Like, let's not worry mm -hmm. about it. Let's just like everything, always, every time. That's why you do it at Fastly, right? Just go ahead and take care of it in every case. And then www. Well, we just don't like it, right, Adam? We just like the cleanliness yeah. of the Apex domain. I kind of despise the yeah. www in our address bar. So some of this is like personal taste, but really what the problem is, is both. Like that's the problem more than anything. If we were going to pick www and redirect that way, totally fine, technically and SEO-wise and all of that kind of stuff. But if you're going to pick the other direction, which is the direction that Adam and I just like to go, and just go Apex domain, same principle applies. It has to be all the time. And so we had these issues where it's easier to go from Apex to WWW than the other way around. And a lot of these have to do with like non-standard DNS records. I always never know the, the details, but you're not supposed to see name in Apex domain. So they create these other kind of records Correct. that are not part of the DNS spec. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? So there's like these, yeah, exactly. there's reasons why WWW on a technical basis is just easier to accomplish. Well. We didn't want to do that. We don't like easy mode. We like hard mode. So, no, get rid of them. That's right. <laughs> we don't need them. We don't want them. So that was happening at Fastly, but it wasn't happening universally. And so Gerhard had kind of turned it on, turned it off over the course of time because weird things would happen. One of those weird things Adam spotted, which is Safari would redirect sometimes and then fail to redirect other times. And it would only happen in Safari. So only Adam and myself every once in a while would catch up on it. But in Curl, everything is fine. In Google, everything is fine. In Brave, everything is fine. But Safari would fail a redirect. And the reason for that was that we had basically a bad conditional in our Fastly config, which would match every request and add a location header to every request, even non-redirect requests. So you'd get like a 200 OK to change.com root, and it would have a location header in there, which most browsers are like, well, I got a 200. I don't need to look for a location header. So it ignores it. Well, mm -hmm. Safari would not ignore it. They'd pick up on it anyways. And so it caused some issues with the redirects working, with redirecting what it's not supposed to, all sorts of weird things. It took me a long time to figure that out because you're not looking at the headers, but <laughs> so you're looking at the response codes and you look at the header. You're a lot like a browser, right? When I see a 301 or a 302, then I look at the location header. But otherwise, I didn't realize 
No, the location header is being added every single request by Fastly. And so I had to go in there and rewrite that condition to basically have two checks. One is this a request that's going to be redirected. And well, that was the one I added. It was make sure it's a redirect request in order to add the location header. Lots of detail there. Lots of uh, mm-hmm. little Fastly changes, you know, like talking about mm-hmm. testing in production. Like, well, I'm going to roll this one out real quick and see if that works. And scripting up requests to like hit all the endpoints that I want to make sure they have the right responses, but got that fixed. And now we are 100% every single time, www gone and HTTPS, all the things. I remember experimenting with this in production. And last time when I've done this, I think it was like a year ago, I introduced at least an hour's worth of downtime. And it wasn't like constant downtime, which I think it's more manageable. It was like flaky downtime. Be down for five minutes and up for two minutes and down again for 10 minutes. It was a terrible experience for users. So this time around, I used another domain, which I just had sitting, right? Because each and every one of us has at least 10 domains right. <laughs> that we bought, but don't use. So I had like one of those and I tried setting a new Fastly service and configuring a few things, but I missed this. This one thing, which was setting the location header, but the status code was wrong, I missed. So you're very welcome right. <laughs> for that surprise. <laughs> for that, like, <laughs> seek, like, how sharp is Jared? <laughs> Can he figure this one out? No, I didn't think. Well, what's funny, there's like a bias when you're going into somebody else's work, where with myself, I always know my mm. incompetence. But when I'm like editing your work, I'm assuming mm. every change is like fully competent with full knowledge. You know, I just give you way more respect mm. than I give myself. So it's harder yes. to find those flaws mm-hmm. because I'm like, surely Gerhard knew what he was doing when he set this. So I must not know what I'm doing because it looks wrong. And so it takes me yeah. longer to actually be like, no, actually he just made a mistake. I really appreciate that, by the way, the respect part. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much, Jared. That means a lot. But I do make mm-hmm. mistakes actually a lot. So a lot of the time I fix them so quickly that people don't even know I've made them. But trust me. That's the key right yeah, there. Mistakes, I, there's so many I make, right? All the time, every single yeah. day. Hundreds and hundreds of them because it's essential to learning. Anyway, experimenting, right? That's At least that's how I see it. So when you were describing your DN simple findings earlier in the conversation, and now we have yes. you guilty again, it reminds me of this amazing quote by Felipe Fortes. I'm not sure if he originated this or if he just has the tweet, but he says, debugging is like being the detective in a crime movie where you are also the murderer. <laughs> That's exactly what it feels like, yes. I murder the infrastructure. <laughs> it's my fault and I have to fix it because <laughs> I messed it up. <laughs> yeah, why Kubernetes? Why? <laughs> Well, there's three people here that closes the loop to your mention of the extra domains hanging around and testing them because I was like, what is that weird domain in Fastly? Yeah. Do you remember which one it was? Just to remember it. It's a very special domain. That's my future. Well, I didn't want to call it out and dox you in case it was like private or something like that. So No, it's okay. It's my but, surname. But the TLD means a lot to me. Gotcha. Do you want to check it out real quick? Well, I was like, what is this domain doing there? It was, it was interesting. Yeah. It is a special one, I have to say. It is the future. I went to it too, and I don't recall it being memorable, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of going to it. I think it actually just said like, yeah, Pong. That's right. It just replies with Pong when you go there? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ping Pong. Yeah. It's like an airline joke. Not like sure. an airline joke, but whenever you like ping nodes, they respond with right. Pong. And Pang, they respond Pang if they can't ping other nodes. So yeah, and it's very relevant to the changelog infrastructure in our app. But anyways, I checked it out. I was like, what is this domain? I'm like, that's weird. Okay. Yeah. Surely Gerhard must know what he's doing. (laughs) I knew exactly what it was. As soon as I saw Lazu and I was like, oh, he's got a test domain out there. He's been trying to futz with because it is kind of, I mean, when you're, you're basically editing varnish cache configs via a web interface and they have some nice tools for diffing and like they'll do a static analysis and make sure that that thing's going to actually boot or whatever. But there's just, it's hard to replicate a production environment in a way that you can just futz around with a config, especially when you're putting conditions and rewrite rules and adding headers and removing headers. And just doing that on your live production site causes all sorts of little downtimes, right, Gerhard? Right. So that was a good move. That's exactly like, okay, so the domain, it's lazu, L-A-Z-U dot C-H. And C-H is really special to me, but we'll talk about it another time. Like today or a different day? It's up to you. Like, you ask me the question, okay? What's <laughs> just like, CH do you mean? <laughs> Let's resolve this now. What is okay, it? Okay, so, so CH is the TLD for Switzerland. Okay. Switzerland is a really special place for me. It's the one place where I feel like home. Doesn't matter when I go, whether it's summer, whether it's winter. Every single opportunity I have to go there, I go there. DevOps Days Zurich happened today and I think yesterday. 
and I was really bummed that I couldn't make it. Maybe next year. It happens once a year. It's a really special place, and it is a future home for sure. It's also a present home, but it's more like a spiritual home rather than, you know, an actual mm-hmm. physical mm-hmm. home. But it's in the future. A few years, a couple of years, who knows? I feel you. But uh, it's definitely there. So we have to go as a family to Switzerland at least once a year. It's perfect. And this year was amazing. Yeah, I saw some of your recent Insta posts or your wife's posts as you guys were vacationing there. And I was like, their vacations look amazing. They're really good at (laughs) photography and great locations, you know? Yeah. And there was nobody else around. It was just you all. You had like the mountains to yourselves. You essentially own them. Yeah. It's not many people out there because it's like so big and wild. Pretty cool. uh, Yes, you have touristy spots, but you get some nice and quiet places. You can be walking for hours and not see another soul. It's great. Love it there. Yeah. Anyways, coming back to the issue at hand, this ClickOps, Dan Mangum, in episode 15. Yes, ClickOps. He mentions it. That's like a great one. I love that. Yeah. We were meant to write or at least attempt to start a fastly provider for crossplane. Didn't have time. Too many things happened. But we must, must version control and GitOps our fastly config. ClickOpsync is just no. It's not going to work. Plus, they have their own little version of version control in there. And so I'm in there reading your mm-hmm. comments and seeing what you changed. And just like you would, yeah. but I would love to have that with all of our existing exactly. tooling and not have to go into their web interface and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I mean, that's one thing. And I think this... ClickOps nature of Fastly makes it easy to make certain mistakes and it makes it more difficult to experiment easier. So experimenting, it's like a little bit harder in what how you create the service. I have to combine things. You can't just put everything together. I had like to install binaries on a server, which I had to set up as an origin because it was that difficult to just combine everything together. I wish it was simpler, much, much simpler. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's one of the areas of improvement. There's too many, so we have to focus, I suppose. But that was a good story, I thought. So just to call it out for the listeners, if you're listening to this and you're curious what the deeper story is, episode 15, ClickOps, Dan Magum. Yeah, so. That was a great one. So thank you, Dan. And we will make it happen for sure. Upbound Cloud, it's in the future as well. But anyways, let's leave that for another time because this is one thing which I find myself doing. I get excited about so many things. I don't want to do everything and it's physically impossible. So mm-hmm. I have to focus a bit more. So mm-hmm. let's do just that. Let's focus a bit more on the incidents that we had, <laughs> on the things that we fixed, because that's what this episode is about. Cool. So there were two more incidents which happened shortly after our second one, the origin, the, the PR378. And they all had to do with Linode networking issues and Linode LKE unavailability. I'll link it in the show notes, the specific incidents, which we call them out. But as a result... August 3, August 26th, Incident 3 and Incident 4. By the way, if you go to the Incident Slack channel, you'll find them. You can click, you can go through them. They're publicly available on our Slack. There's a couple of things there. The one with LKE was interesting because our database, the backups and the restores when there's networking issues, they are not as reliable, which then prevents things from rebooting properly. So that was like an interesting one. I'm sure we'll come back to this, especially as we start looking closer to CockroachDB and a fly PostgreSQL. I have, that's like very, very recent. So we'll leave that maybe for another time, but it's there. The other one was around, again, CDN, Fastly. The website was available 100%, 100% uptime on the change.com via CDN. But our origin, our backend, the one LKE, in this period, like between the two episodes, between episode 10, which was July 15th, and this one, we had 99.69 uptime, which means we were down for four hours. So three nines, we can't even do three nines on our origin. We can do 100% on Fastly when Fastly's <laughs> not down. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> but that was, I think, always like an interesting one to see and contrast and compare. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this was a US East issue, right? This is a networking issue in multiple data centers. When you say US East, that's multiple, right? I'm not sure how many data centers they have, but... It's one region though, right? It's a region, yes. Yeah. So they don't have like US East 1, US East 2, or... I see. You no, know, as other providers have. So I think it's a single data center. But anyways, it was affecting us and it was like a region-wide networking issue. That was August 3rd. And August 26th, there was like an LK issue. So it was unavailable for about an hour and things were failing in weird and wonderful ways. But again, if you're not logged in or if you're not doing any dynamic requests, any post patch to the changelog app, everything's Mm -hmm. fine, everything's up. There's a bit more latency, but uh, that's it. That's what you used to see. So Linode has a global infrastructure page where they show off 
the regions. I think it's one marketing, but then two obviously informational. But if what they mean by U.S. East is comprises Toronto, Newark, which is in New Jersey, and Atlanta, which is in Georgia, Toronto's in Canada. So that's multi-country, East Coast, Northern Hemisphere, I guess, North America. Mm-hmm. If they mean, well, I guess U.S. East might be actually Newark and Atlanta then, and Toronto is on its own. Maybe it's Canada East, maybe it's CAN East or something, potentially. I don't know. For us, it's uh, New York. Okay. New York and New Jersey. So what do you do then? So when you have this kind of issue, obviously, when you, I guess, how do you remedy? How do you plan for network downtime? I mean, one, it's you got database backups that can go wrong. The reliability, as you mentioned, or even rebooting despite network issues. Like, how do you SRE around this kind of issue? So we touched up on this in episode 10 when we talked about multi-cloud. But I think for us, it's even simpler than that. I started looking at Fly, like seriously looking at Fly recently. And they have a concept of running multiple instances of your app in different regions very, very easily. And it works, but the problem is that for the ChangeLog app, we have two, well, actually there's one very important dependency and that's the, you know what I'm gonna say, Jared, right? No. The upload media volume. Oh yes. Mm -hmm. Until we have that, we can only run a single instance because the volume is just local. It can only exist in a single region. Things get very complicated if we use multi-regions. I know there are solutions, but the trade-offs, I wouldn't want to make them. It would be much easier. And that's a Linode thing, right? That's not a, like, that block storage, essentially, right? That's what that is, is block storage. It's just local storage. It's local storage. Yeah, exactly, like block storage, okay. local storage. Yeah. I wasn't sure if it was like their, their block storage service and it's local to that. Yeah, it okay. doesn't matter how it's implemented or who we're using, whether it's Fly, whether it's Linode, whether it's GCP. In this case, a disk can only be attached right, like to a single instance. And it's like mm-hmm. a Kubernetes limitation as well, depending mm-hmm. on the CSI driver. The point being, until we store our media, our files on like an S3 compatible API, doesn't matter which one it is, we are limited to running a single instance because of this volume thing. Mm. So if we had that, if we moved off, if we stopped depending on like local storage or like block storage and we use this, then we could have multiple changelog instances and if a region went down, that's okay. We have two, three more running. So that sounds interesting. So I've made the first steps in that direction. I just haven't made steps two through N at this point. And the first step was to identify the replacement library for ARC, which is the file uploads library we are using, which does have S3 support, but has fallen into, I don't want to call it disrepair because it's working just fine. Let's just call it unmaintained mode. I just don't want to change and make progress on a library that's unmaintained. And I don't want to maintain it either at this phase. There are some folks who've picked up the mantle and run with it. And it's actually a fork, a community fork called Waffle, which is being maintained by the community. So I couldn't remember it. I had to find it in my bookmark history or my search history because Waffle does not come to mind. You think of like Elixir file uploads, Waffle. I don't know. It should be like X Mm -hmm. upload or that's how Elixir is the name. Upload X. So it took me a while to find it, and then I started to actually get, dive in and find out what they've been doing since then, what the process it takes to swap it over. And so I'm like on that phase of switching over to cloud uploads. So more to come, but we're not there, but it hasn't been zero action by mm-hmm. me on that. That would include like user-related stuff to like avatars, uploaded images to news items. Anything uploaded essentially to the set would be no longer local, would be in the S3 compatible. That's right. Thing. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Honeycomb. Honeycomb is built on the belief that there's a more efficient way to understand exactly what is happening in production right now. When production is running slow, it's hard to know exactly where problems originate. Is it your application code, your users, or the underlying systems? Teams who don't use Honeycomb scroll through endless dashboards guessing at what they mean. They deal with alert floods, guessing which ones matter, and go from tool to tool to tool, guessing at how the puzzle pieces all fit together. It's this context switching and tool sprawl that is slowly killing your teams and your business. With Honeycomb, you get a fast, unified, and clear understanding of the one thing driving your business, production. Honeycomb quickly shows you the correct source of issues, discover hidden problems, even in the most complex stacks, understand why your app feels slow to only some users. With Honeycomb, you guess less and know more. Join the swarm and try Honeycomb free today at honeycomb.io slash changelog. Again, honeycomb.io slash changelog. 
and by our friends at Fire Hydrant. Fire Hydrant is the reliability platform for teams of all sizes. With Fire Hydrant, teams achieve reliability at scale by enabling speed and consistency from your service deployment to an unexpected outage. When your team learns from an incident, you can codify those learnings into repeatable automated runbooks. These runbooks can create a Slack incident channel, notify particular team members, create tickets, schedule a Zoom meeting, execute a script, or send a webhook. For example, your app goes down, an alert gets sent to a specific Slack channel, which can then be turned into an incident that will trigger a workflow you define in a runbook. A pin message inside Slack will show off all the details the Jira ticket, the Clubhouse ticket, the Zoom meeting, and all of this is contained in your dedicated incident channel everyone on the team pays attention to. Spend less time thinking about what to do next and get to work actually resolving the issue faster. What would normally be multiple manual tasks across the entire spectrum of responding to an incident can be automated in every way with Fire Hydrant. Give them a try for free for 14 days. Get Get access to every feature, no credit card required. Get started at firehydrant.io. Again, firehydrant.io. There's one more thing which I want to talk about before we tackle next steps which I'm a big fan of, what happens between episode 20 and episode 30. The thing that I want to talk about before we cover next steps is the errors in Sentry that we've been seeing. So between July 15th and September, basically between the two episodes, we have 3.2 thousand errors. Sentry makes it really easy to see exactly what's been happening in the app. 2.3 thousand of them are the undefined function error, crypto, HMAC, Arity 3. And this is actually linked to the Erlang 24 upgrade that we did with Alex Kutmos three months ago. Alex, it's your yeah. fault. No, it's not. It's actually not. <laughs> <laughs> right. So one of the unintended side effects of that upgrade was that one of the libraries that we use, and Jared knows more about this, is no longer working. So tell us a bit more about that, Jared. Well, I can tell you the rabbit hole I've gone down trying to fix it, which is that basically our Twitter off has been offline ever since then which so far only Matt Ryer seems to know about. So maybe he's the only one who uses Twitter Auth on a regular basis. He's always like, I can't sign into the website. And I'm like, dude, just put your email address in there and we'll send you a magic link. And then he's like, oh, you can do that? Anyways, <laughs> he really likes Twitter Auth. We offer GitHub Auth and Twitter Auth. Well, we did offer Twitter Auth for a while until we upgraded to Erlang 24. <laughs> and this crypto HMAC error happens deep inside of the Uber Auth Twitter library that we use. And it's a difficult situation because it basically, I don't know, I don't, I don't know if segfault's the right word, but it, it just crashes the interpreter altogether. This is not a nice stack trace and everything. It's deep down in there, but what it's saying, this crypto HMAC error is not exactly the problem, I don't think, but it's very difficult for me to debug because I have to debug it from inside of UberAuth Twitter, the package. And that package doesn't handle the situation gracefully at all and like handed up the stack to me in, a, in order to debug. And I can't actually repro in dev. And so that's as far as I've gotten. I found out what the problem is. I think it's when it's passing in like an empty session cookie for some reason and it's trying to HMAC like an empty string. If I recall correctly, it's hairy down in there, but actually it's just navigating the debugging which has made me not been able to fix it. And so what I do is every couple of weeks, I go check their repo and see if they've cut a new release. And then I upgrade. I'm like, please have it fixed. And then it still doesn't work because I don't even know what issue to open at this point. It's such a small use of our website. And I'm pretty sure most of those things hitting that error are just robots hitting that, that route. They're not people. So I haven't fixed it. I haven't opened an issue yet. I hope that somebody just upgrades a thing and it goes away. Maybe is Erlang 25 out yet? I don't know. <laughs> no. What, what changed, Gerhard? What's going on in there? Because I, I can't figure it out quite yet. So a function call that this library is making no longer exists. Crypto HMAC with an arity of three, which takes three arguments, it's undefined in Erlang 24. Must have been removed. So we can go to Erlang 23. It wouldn't take much, really. But 24 came out in July. It's a much better one. So many improvements. Other than this, we haven't seen any issues. So it's a good upgrade to make. We are on the latest major of Erlang. Erlang 25 is coming out next year. They ship once a year in the summer, June, July, sometimes May, but it's usually June. So I see two things. Either someone from the library just as like Parker 
Selbert from Oban helped us improve things. That was a great contribution. And that actually would be a nice reward for these episodes that we make, right? We talk about these yeah, things. Absolutely. I would quite like that. And if that doesn't happen, not a problem. Maybe we just disable Twitter off. If there's not that many people using it, sorry, Matt. Yeah. I don't know what we do about that. (laughs) But if there's not many people using it, why don't we just remove the feature rather than like the majority of our errors are this. And we may have some other bigger errors, but we don't see them because there's a lot of noise. So it just goes like to good hygiene, good housekeeping. We either remove the feature or we fix it. And either is acceptable. I don't mind which one it is, as long as number of errors are going down, as long as we are improving this. So what do you think? Yeah, I'm pro fixing it, but I'm also didn't cross my mind just to disable it in the meantime. I think that's probably the move is you disable it to get it fixed. And we definitely want to get it fixed. There's no reason not to. And the Uber off Twitter is maintained. I don't see anybody complaining about this. I feel like we get in a weird state that nobody else does where I think that arity of three is the issue. Like it's passing in an empty string when it shouldn't be. Anyways, I feel like I can probably get to the bottom of it and find out that I'm actually the murderer somehow. But... <laughs> Maybe even just sharing the stack trace as we have it mm-hmm. and see what the developers of that library think or have to say. Maybe it's an easy fix. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe they don't even know this is happening because we're the only ones having this problem, which is hard to believe. But maybe people are so stumped by it that they say, you know what? I don't even know how to report this issue. Yeah. Part of it's my open source citizenship. I feel obligated to spend like eight hours on it before I open an issue because I know that I'm going to take someone else's time. And so I'm hesitant to open it. Although on the other side, you're going to save other people time if they have the same issue. But then I figure no one else has opened it. So maybe it is just me. I don't know. There's too many feels going on there. Mm. Well, that's why we do this, right? We think about improvement, how to improve things, even though it may be difficult, but it's that spirit of improvement, of contributing to the open source, because otherwise, where would we be without it? I don't want to think about that. (laughs) 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 So the other source of errors, which by the way, these started only three days ago. Ecto query cast error. We had 700 in the last three days. And that seems a bit more meaningful. Yeah. So this is a specific route. Your first point is well taken because I haven't seen this one. Whereas the other one, I knew about it quite well because every time I look at Sentry, it's like the top of the list. I haven't actually seen this one until right now. And it looks like it's a single endpoint. It's like unsubscribing from the Founders Talk podcast. That's the route. And you're doing it with no email, like basically with a user ID that doesn't exist. So this is definitely a robot. That's why there's been so many of them. It's the same exact IP. This show's really bad at this point then because we got problems with the show. Yeah, everyone's trying to unsubscribe. We just won't let them. Like when they hit unsubscribe, it just errors <laughs> out. They're like, dang it, I'll try again next time they email me. No, these are all within like hours of each other. So this is a the same IP, same exact user agent, hitting the exact, same exact route. It's definitely not a person, mm-hmm. but I can fix this one pretty easily by basically just making that query a little smarter and not erring. It'll just send them a 404 or something like that. Send them to an infinite loop if they're a robot. You know, send them to a crash their machine. Okay. And instead of 404ing it, you know, that's that's too that's too obvious. Whenever anybody tries to unsubscribe from Founders Talk, we just crash their machine. Well, if they have this, you know, bot like behavior, yeah. So now I need like a throttling library. This is too much work for a troll. <laughs> no, because I think we can see details, right? Like in Sentry, if you click the link, yeah. by the way, and I and well, I can't add it in the show notes, but we can see the IP address which it's coming from. We can see the Chrome version. Yeah. And we can see that it's using Windows 10. So if you're trying to unsubscribe and you're a listener of this, <laughs> we are looking into it. <laughs> we know it's a problem. <laughs> it's been happening for the last four days. <laughs> Please hang on tight. We're fixing it. <laughs> I would recommend emailing editors at changelog.com and just saying, please unsubscribe me manually. Yeah, that's a good one. This could be like a really MacGyver style listener who's like, I want to unsubscribe. I realize they have a bug. I'm just going to write a script that hits it every couple hours until it works and then I'll be unsubscribed. Maybe that's what's going on here. Apparently there's like a single user and it's been happening 695 times in the last four days. Someone is really persistent. (laughs) What do we do to you? Gosh. But one thing which I wanted to say is that Get Sentry made it easy. We get like those weekly emails. We can see whether the errors are going up mm-hmm. or down. They have some nice things. Like I don't go there that often, but they have a performance feature, which we don't even use. That's an interesting one. Also dashboards. They have like a new dashboards feature. But just looking at the issues, it's very easy to see which are the top ones, which have been happening the most, like in the last 30 days or like within the timestamp. It's easy to see where you should focus first 
as far as application errors go. That was nice. Yeah, what they don't do, and this is probably a config, I just haven't got it set up right, that Rollbar would do is the first time a new issue comes in, I was to get an email every time. And then with Sentry, I get the weekly email, and I just don't get the, hey, new error detected email, which I figure is a standard feature that I just don't have mm-hmm. set up. And that's why I probably didn't even notice this one, because I don't go there and check Sentry unless I'm experiencing. Or I get the weekly email and say, dang, a lot of errors this week, and I go check it again. Hmm. But that's the thing. I just don't have that set up right, maybe? Are you guys getting emails on new errors? I'm only getting the weeklies, the weekly updates. No, only the weekly ones. Mm-hmm. So one thing that I can see on this issue it's on the right-hand side, just underneath the number of events, is ownership rules. Import GitHub or GitLab code owners files to automatically sign issues to the right people. Maybe that would help. I don't know. I don't know. I'll look into it more. Not interesting mm-hmm. for this conversation, but just something that we have to figure out. I mean, we would be the owner. Just set, set yourself the owner of all new issues, maybe. And then maybe you'll get emailed. I don't know. What is odd, too, is at least in this last report, was that Monday through Friday was low errors. It was Saturday and Sunday that was the error dates, which like is the exact opposite of at least web traffic. I'm not sure about listen traffic. They happen a lot more on weekends, but I would suspect that weekdays are probably higher than weekends in most cases mm-hmm. for us. Yeah, that is an interesting one. Well, the weekends, when you finally listen to that Founders Talk episode, you're like, I got to get off of this train. <laughs> So bad. So bad. <laughs> no. no. 695 no. times. We're picking, we, I guess for the listener's sake, uh, Founders Talk is Adam's show. He does it all by yeah. himself. So we're picking on him at this point. Yes, we are. Sorry. That was really bad. <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> I apologize. It's a great podcast. You should totally subscribe. And I'm not saying that. For you sure. should, yes. Okay. So what happens next next steps between episode 20 and episode 30 what is the first thing that you'd like to see happen jared let's go around or adam if you have one already queued up well i know we've been talking about exploring more i'm all about one percent improvement so i would say let's make progress on the front not so much accomplish the front but let's explore you know what it might be to consider Something like Fly, considering their new hire recently and their focus on Elixir, we're an Elixir stack, so it makes sense to explore the advantages of different platforms and how it works. And, you know, one, get around the networking issue that we had there. And so what if it could be multi-cloud? You know, you'd mentioned Upbound and and the ability to have a plane that goes across different clouds and whatnot. So maybe that makes sense to continue to explore down or share what you've currently explored so far. Yeah, that's a good one. So... The person that Adam is talking about is Chris McCord, creator of the Phoenix framework, Mm -hmm. is exactly what changelog.com, the app, is using. And he joined... It's about two weeks ago, I think. Yeah, so a few weeks ago, he joined the Fly team. I think that's great. There's a big commitment from Fly to Phoenix, to Elixir, to this ecosystem, which makes us very excited because our app is using exactly the same stack. So that's great. And I'll plug too, since we're dogging Founders Talk, I'll plug episode 80 <laughs> with, you know, one of the co-founders and the CEO, Kurt Mackey, whom I think is a super awesome dude. I think he's super smart, has great intentions. He's a developer at heart. He is a developer, obviously. But, you know, he's been iterating exactly what the title of the show is, iterating to globally distributed apps and databases for a long time. You know, he was the person who was behind MongoHQ, naming issues, long story short, Short turned that into Compose, which was eventually acquired by IBM, exited that positively, continued to explore, and founded Fly.io. I'm telling a micro version of the story. Why come here twice? Super smart fella. So, you know, a lot of respect for what they're doing. And I think, you know, their grounds they're, that they're tilling, I suppose. I'm trying to use farmer terms or something like that, you know. The grounds they're dealing with over there are grounds mm-hmm. worth exploring. So In episodes... 18, ship it episode 18. Mm-hmm. In the show notes, there is a link to Firecracker VMs on Metal. Oh my, this is Kurt Mackey's talk in March earlier this year. At proximity. Yeah. The proximity one. That was a really good talk. I really, really enjoyed it. So if you want to check it out, that got me really excited about Fly and the infrastructure which they run. And I'm sure Kurt will be joining Shipit very soon. Yeah. I think, you know, we barely scratched the surface of the ideas he has. I think Mm. he's due a conversation with you at a deeper level on the tech side. What about you, Jared? Would you like to go next? Your top thing? Well, it's time to get our uploads cut over to cloud, but that one's on me. On you, Gerhard, 
I want to see that honeycomb test out integration sometime here real soon because I did enjoy nice. what Charity had to say on your episode with her. And I think that it sounds like a good place to hop in and try out Honeycomb and report back your findings to us and the gang. Yeah, that's that's actually a good one. So this is one of the problems that I've been having since episode 10. I've had so many great conversations on Ship It, and I want to try so many things, <laughs> and I do a little bit of this and a little bit right. of that, but nothing long enough to land it. And that's something which I'd like to be doing more of. Focus. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. But there's so many exciting things. Like I want to try flying. I want to try honeycomb. And I do. And I like set it up and I cockroach DB and I've set things up, but I haven't taken it all the way. So that's something which I would like to get better at. So my top of the list, I really like what you've mentioned, Jared and Adam. And I think this basically is more towards Adam, is experimenting more for sure. There's debugging the Kubernetes issue that you've been having since... Actually, since we enabled Grafana Cloud, we had more visibility into Ingress Nginx. What we see, and this is, by the way, in a raw code live stream, which is coming up, and it will be out, by the way, by the time you listen to this, I can add it to the show notes, is that the tail latencies, this is Ingress Nginx, our tail latencies to the app are really high. So our 90th percentile, this is Ingress Nginx to Phoenix to PostgreSQL, the request coming back, to ingress nginx the maximum 90th percentile is 286 milliseconds it's fairly high but it's okay not that high the 95th one is 841 milliseconds so almost a second so some requests can take almost a second to come back and that's fairly slow but the 99th percentile this is like the long tail that i've been talking about can be as high as a minute so which requests are taking more than a minute to service oh my gosh it's a long time, a minute. Yeah. I mean, a full second is a long time. A minute is 60 times of those. Exactly. I'm just doing some math for you who don't know how time works. Thank you. Thank you, Adam. So that's one thing which I would like to look into more because one thing which, I mean, I had like many great conversations in these 10 episodes, but the one which really resonated with me was the one with Justin Searles about reliable software, trusting your software, optimizing for, for smoothness, not speed. That was episode 16. So I would like to make Changelog, the app, the setup more reliable, more robust. I just want it to work as good as it can for as many people as it can, even when things go wrong behind the scenes. End users shouldn't need to know about that or see that. And if it does happen, let's just be honest about it. Let's just, you know, have incidents, talk about it openly and figure out how to do it better, how to improve. So on my mind, how do we make it more reliable? How do we fail less? How are we more available? I think we, we have made some great improvements, but I don't think we're there yet. I don't think we'll ever be there, but at least we'll be improving. That's where my mind is at. Well, Kaizen, right? Come back to Kaizen. Speaking of Kaizen, behind the scenes, we have a t-shirt design, which is simply the Japanese characters that make up the word Kaizen, which I feel like is an adopted, you rose this flag, Gerhard. So I think, I feel like this is an adopted company-wide mantra for me at least, ever since you you brought it up, we're now on Kaizen 2, essentially this is episode 20 of Ship It, but, but truly the second version of Kaizen for us. And so if you're this far this into the show and you thought, these guys navel gaze big time on the show, mm. it's on purpose, okay? It's on purpose. <laughs> this is about Ship It, the show. This is about our infrastructure. This is about change all media and how we progress as a business. We're a podcast company primarily. How we think about infrastructure, how we conjure that into content that entertains, but also informs. And, you know, this embodies this idea of continuous improvement, Kaizen. And so we do have a shirt coming out soon. It's the Japanese characters that rep represent Kaizen. It's a cool, super cool shirt. It's on a super soft t-shirt. You're going to love it. And uh, I'm excited to wear that to represent this idea of continuous improvement and embracing that. And on that high note, episode 20 is a wrap. Thank you, gents. It was a pleasure. Looking forward to the next one. Me too. Kaizen. 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 That's it for this episode of Ship It. Thank you for tuning in. We have a bunch of podcasts for developers at Changelog that you should check out. Subscribe to the master feed at changelog.com forward slash master to get everything we ship. I want to personally invite you to join your fellow Changeloggers at changelog.com forward slash community. It's free to join and stay. Leaving on the other hand will cost you some happiness credits. Come hang with us in Slack there are no imposters, everyone is welcome. Huge thanks again to our partners, 
fastly, launch darkly and minnows. Also, thanks to Breakmaster Cylinder for making all our awesome beats. That's it for this week. See you next week. Thank you.